Hello and welcome to the weekly Bunker Roundtable. I'm Andrew Harrison. On this week's edition, Trussism finally starts to take shape and it's all about deregulation and, of course, feeding those poor, starving bankers. Does the Prime Minister really think she can govern the whole country by narrowcasting to the same zealots who made her leader of the Tory party? Plus, Morn Week showed us that police tolerance for even the most trifling public protest has become very thin. Blank bits of paper, anyone? Now that the Queen's funeral has passed, will we get back to normal, whatever that is? Or has something permanent happened to the right to protest? And... The founder of high-end outdoor fashion brand Patagonia has given his company away to the environment. Does it really help the fight against climate change if the Earth itself becomes CEO? All that and more on this week's Bunker. Welcome to a bank holiday recording of The Bunker. We continue to thrive and provide free podcasts to everyone thanks to the generous support of listeners like you. You can help us do more by backing us on the Crowdfunder Patreon. For as little as £2 a month, you'll get the shows early and ad-free as well as our marvellous bespoke merchandise. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast or follow the link in the show notes. Now let's say hello to today's panel who have kindly given up their bank holiday of reflection to join us. First up, it's former BBC journalist, Chancellor of the University of Kent and author of How Britain Ends, Gavin Esler. Hi, Gavin. Hello. How are you? Not bad. Not bad. So we are witnessing incredible things coming out of Ukraine. Their advance seems to have stopped for the moment. But at the same time, Putin has trouble on another front, which is that the Chinese leader Xi Jinping is offering him pretty much zero support. No weapons, no ammo, just a hard stare. What, what is going on there? I think this is a huge story. I mean, Putin is Russia's richest oligarch. And uh, as you may also know, uh, over the past year, a number of oligarchs, a lot of oligarchs have been falling out of windows and deciding to commit suicide. So uh, his his future is perhaps resting on something different now. Uh, Narendra Modi at the big meeting that they have just had, uh, you know, Prime Minister of India has said today's era is not, is not of war. So he is not sounding very enthusiastic about what Russia is doing in Ukraine. Uh, Xi Jinping is not sounding very enthusiastic either. What's interesting about this is, uh, you know, I, I first went to China under Deng Xiaoping. And one of the things that people kept saying was the Russians still treat us with a Stalinist mentality. They are big brother. We are little brother. We're not going to be like that anymore when the economy grows. And that's exactly what has happened. And so uh, the other part of that is China is concerned because for years, decades, they have pursued, ever since 1955, actually, they pursued a policy of non-interference in other people's affairs. That's what they say. They may not exactly do it. But what they mean is, we don't want you to interfere with the Uyghurs. We don't want you to interfere in Tibet or in Hong Kong. And so... Putin in certainly interfering in another country, however you t- dress it up, is not actually uh, doing the Chinese any favours in any way. And one other thing is that the Russian economy is so small in comparison to the Western economies, it doesn't really ma- much matter as a customer. So there's a lot of problems there for Putin. Also with us, it's Chief Executive of the New Economics Foundation, where she fights for an economy that works for people and the planet. Miata Fambole. Hi, Miata. Hi, how are you doing? Not bad, not bad. So um, on the economy, the pound has hit its lowest point in 37 years this week, very thoughtfully timing its rock bottom figure of a dollar and 13 cents for the 30th anniversary of Black Wednesday. So very good timing, the pound. Why is this happening now? What does it mean for the person in the street this autumn? And is it all really Brexit? 
So I think it's reflecting uh, where people's prognosis about the economy is, which is it's pretty gloomy. So I think there are two things that, to be fair, is happening. One is it reflects the fact that there is confidence building in the US economy, uh, partly because it looks like they might be out of the worst of things um, and uh, be on the up. On the other side, um, our economy looks like we might already be in recession or we're very close to recession. We saw that retail sales figures came out um, and they were worse than expected. We saw a bigger fall. And so I think across the piece, there's a sense that the economy is about to go through a really difficult patch. And that's then reflecting in the extent to which people are willing to back the pound. I think what that means for people on the street is, uh, hold on, I think we're on for a really, really tough ride uh, over the course of the next year. Um, and we can only hope that the people who have levers, and that's the Bank of England, and that is the government, are doing the right thing in order to protect people, but also to try and get the economy moving. And basically, don't go on holiday to America next week. No, I definitely don't go on holiday to America <laughs> next week. Which is what I'm doing. Well done, me. Uh, completing the panel, it's columnist Cook, Chanteur and polymath Alex Andreo. How's it going, Alex? Hi, Andrew. In tiny little amuse-bouche for the Liz Truss era, her chief of staff, Mark Fulbrook, has been interviewed by the FBI about an alleged plot to bribe a politician and influence an election in Puerto Rico. This is a an unusual start to the new squeaky clean, no drama <laughs> trust administration, isn't it? Andrew, shall I briefly explain what the case is about? It, it, yes, it's please. It's quite interesting. Yeah. So um, the first thing to say is Mark Fulbrook denies much of the Sunday Times article, which is the subject of a legal complaint. The second thing to say is that the basic facts I'm about to give you are based on the Department of Justice criminal indictment and denied by all the accused. All right. So caveats out of the way. Briefly, this is about the Puerto Rico uh, 2020 gubernatorial election. The incumbent at the time, Wanda Vasquez Garced, was offered, it is alleged, $300,000 by international banker Julian Herrera Velutini in exchange for her sacking the then head of the island's financial regulator, who was poking into Velutini's affairs. She agreed, it is alleged. Here's where it gets interesting. Velutini's based in Mayfair, is a Tory donor and a client of Linton Crosby's firm, CT Group. It is alleged that this donation was effectively funneled through that firm to get round um, laws about foreign funding uh, in elections, with Fulbrook taking point on the project, basically. That's how he gets involved. Fulbrook, it is then reported, signed an agreement with the FBI sometime in April and is cooperating as a witness. Now, also in April, Fulbrook quit CT from where he had run Johnson's leadership campaign on loan, by the way. Um, sources say his decision to sign an agreement with the FBI exacerbated a rift between him and Linton Crosby. So he started his own firm, ran Truss, Truss's leadership campaign, and then she appointed him her chief of staff. That's the story so far. Um, it is almost irrelevant whether he's done anything wrong or not, in, in my view. Optics is what matters here, and her chief of staff being investigated by the UK's closest ally just looks awful. Um, if she has any sense, she will dump Fulbrook 
before the week is out, in my view. Liz Truss's government now has to squeeze its first two weeks into four days before the House rises again for conference season, although they're voting on whether that will happen or not. We make that a grand total of six days of government since the end of July. Britannia unchained. If there's any theme to tease out of the new government, it is deregulation. No more fracking bans, no more cap on bankers' bonuses, and maybe no more sugar tax on unhealthy foods either. It's all going to be wrapped up in Quasi Quartang's mini-budget coming next week. Miata, um, deregulation is such a Thatcherite article of faith. What is left for them to deregulate? We're a pretty unregulated society as it stands. Yeah, completely. I mean... I have to be honest, this feels like a government out of ideas um, because the big bottlenecks to the British economy, the thing that means that living standards haven't budged for well over a decade is not the fact that we are an overregulated um, economy and, uh, and market. So it, it sort of feels like they are doing this throwback because they don't really have answers for the big problems that we face going forward. Um, and I think that's desperately worrying for the country. We haven't had you on since the announcement of the energy cap, £2,500 per unit. It is a complicated thing. I think a lot of people still don't understand. It hasn't been fully explained by the government itself because of the mourning period for the Queen. What do you make of the energy plan as we understand it so far? I think two things. I think it was good that they acted because if you remember, we had that long period where everyone could see that we were about to sleepwalking into a catastrophic crisis and the government was basically asleep at the wheel. Um, and, you know, it's a big intervention. It's a massive intervention, bigger than I thought it would be, where the government is essentially stepping in, which is rather ironic for a kind of free marketing government, but stepping in into the energy market to subsidise the difference between the price for energy we pay in the wholesale market and the price for energy that consumers get. And it will have an impact. Uh, So I think I would give them all of that. I think what I would say, though, is that it's a hugely expensive measure. And the fact that they're not asking energy producers who we know are making excessive profits to foot part of this bill, I just don't understand. I think it's desperately problematic because my worry is that they'll now turn around and say, we've done this massive intervention that's going to cost us anywhere between 100 billion and 200 billion. We now have no more headroom, no more money to spend on other things. And the truth is 2,500 cap on average will help. But for a lot of families, it will be completely unaffordable, particularly on families on low and modest incomes. And there wasn't an announcement about how we're going to boost incomes of people on benefits and people people on low to modest incomes within their measures. Um, and so it feels like the additional support that they're going to have to provide, they may be constraining their ability to do that because they won't ask people who are making ridiculous profits to pay a bit more to help us through this. What we're told is that that growth will be presented as the answer to all of our problems. You know, Quartang plans to reverse the £30 billion national insurance rise, cancel the corporation tax increase and scrap green levies on energy bills. This sounds very much like reheated Thatcherism. Can it work in, in an inflationary environment like we've got right now? So the short answer is no, but let me unpick it. So where I have some sympathy with the government is that I think they're right to say there is probably more scope for us to stimulate the economy, um, partly because the thing that's driving inflation, let's remember, is not the fact that the economy is doing really well, it's overheated, there's lots of demand. It's the fact that we have this huge energy price shock and also we're still, if you like, dealing with the um, the fallback, um, fallout of the pandemic and some of the supply bottlenecks we saw coming out of that. So there is scope 
scope to act. The question is, what do you do? Um, and for me, the kind of focus on growth seems completely mad when if we look over the course of the last decade, what we saw is that we had periods of growth, but that didn't trickle into people's living standards being better off, particularly people on low and modest incomes. And so we're about to basically reheat exactly what we've done. So you might help those at the top, but it doesn't help those in the middle and it doesn't help those at the bottom. And then the second thing is the measures that they're looking at, tax cuts, which again, we know disproportionately benefits those at the top, won't help those that A, are likely to spend in the economy. So if you give someone on low incomes more money, they were likely to spend it. Whereas the richer you are, the more likely you're going to use it for savings. So it's not clear that it's going to do what it needs to. But what is clear is that it's going to exacerbate inequality. And for people who have not seen their living standards improve, it's not clear that their plan is going to have any impact on that. Well, far from the first to point out that this is reheated Thatcherism, it played enormously well with the Tory membership. It got her elected. It seems to be that the Tory party is moving right as the entire electorate is moving left. Is there any evidence that the rest of the country actually wants any of this approach? No, in short. And in part, you know, if we think about the kind of Johnsonian era, and there's many things that we can criticise, but, you know, for me, there was a shift in economic policy. And in part, because I think he was reflecting what the public wanted and also could see was necessary. And when you have these big, big structural problems that you have to contend with, Free market economics is not your solution to it. But more than that, we've had 40 years where we tried this experiment and it's proved to be completely flawed. Um, and the one thing it was supposed to do, which is trickle down to help everyone, it has not done that effectively. So again, I go back to it feels like they're out of ideas. I think at a time when the public now have quite high expectations of what they think the government should do in order to both help people out, but also get our economy working. You have a government that's going to experiment with something that we've tried and, in my view, has failed. And I think they will pay the price of that. Alex, um, as Miata just said, Trust left £170 billion of excess energy profits untaxed. The idea of a windfall tax is popular with Conservative voters as well. It's popular across the spectrum. Is this just as a very primary colours broad brush statement that I think tax is bad? Well, no, because, I mean, that's Truss's spin on it. but. Uh, the money will be recovered from somewhere. Um, so a tax in the broadest sense will be involved. I mean, a levy on all our bills for the next 10 years is a tax. It's just a, a sly, indirect tax. Um, so it's a statement that she doesn't like that kind of tax, but she will tax it from somewhere. Look, there, there, are, there are many reasons why neoliberal economics dislikes windfall taxes some of it some of them are good some of them are bad their usually retrospective nature is considered contrary to to a, a sort of tax certainty um they're often seen as the thin end of a wedge creating incentive for government to to raid business coffers whenever it wants they're often not levied on true windfalls none of this applies here this is a true windfall those companies are unwittingly profiting from the very same war that is clobbering consumers. It is the easiest win that any PM and the lowest hanging fruit that any chancellor have ever been gifted. And the fact that they're not reaching for it is a really clear statement of priorities. They believe, I think, fervently in trickle-down, precisely what Miata was saying. They, they, uh, uh, think that leaving lots of money sloshing at the top 
will somehow have a halo effect on the rest of the economy. And it's been tried and it's failed, but they're going to try it again because they have nothing new to reach for. She's famously inflexible. It's pretty much the only thing we know about her. Do you mm. think she's going to be able to maintain those uh, cosplay Thatcher free market credentials as the autumn gets worse? I thought about this a little bit. I think Thatcher did not make a name for herself by making the right calls, despite a certain rewriting of history. Many of her calls were proved disastrously wrong, even at the time, let alone in retrospect. I think Thatcher's reputation was based on inflexibility, which people saw as strength. So there's a school of thought, by the way, that she wasn't ultimately undone by the poll tax, but by U-turning on the poll tax, that it showed a chink in her armor, you know, that the lady was for turning. And that was the beginning of the people who had an eye on the top position beginning to snipe for her. Truss is trying to follow the same path. The problem for Truss is that, firstly, we live in a very different world, which I believe does not lend itself to such inflexibility. The second thing is that she's patently role-playing strength from a position of weakness. I mean, look at the polls. Thatcher didn't have to um, do that. She didn't have to, you know, she had to convince a base that already liked her to keep liking her. That's a really different proposition from trying to convince people who dislike you to like you. What did you make of the uh, this move to scrap the sugar tax, which seems to have fallen apart already? I mean, we have an obesity problem that cost the NHS an estimated 6.1 billion a year. This is a, a tax that's broadly supported, even in, in you know, lots of parts of the food industry. And they just seem to be wanting to get rid of it uh, on a point in principle. Again, the same reheated nonsense, isn't it? All regulation is bad. There was a joke during the rounds a couple of decades ago that if a, if an asteroid was threatening the Earth, you know, conservative government solution would be to privatise the aerospace industry um, drop corporation tax and blame immigrants. And I don't think anything has changed in that. It, it, it is literally the knee-jerk reaction to panic. The economy is going into a tailspin and their reaction is, I'm afraid, economically illiterate. We're just not giving the asteroid the right incentives, Alex. It needs to be incentivized <laughs> to do. Um, so, you know, within all this, I mean, Labour's line since the early summer has been pay rises for bankers, pay cuts for district nurses. Even Tory insiders are calling the government's ideas this week tone deaf and utterly toxic. Horrible though it is for the country. Is this good stuff for Labour? Oh, it's a gift to the opposition. I mean, it has, she, she literally defined the battle lines for the next election in her first PMQs, it was an extraordinary strategic error for her to allow Labour to present themselves as the fiscally responsible ones, the people going, the question is where you, how you pay for this, not whether you're going to do it. Um, and she's allowed them to say that we would pay for it by taxing those with the broadest shoulders, by spreading the, the weight of this measure as fairly as possible across society. And all she had in response was, you can't tax your way to growth. You can't tax your way to growth. She kept repeating that. So if in a year's time, we don't have 4% growth, 
it's a massive hostage to fortune because Labour will turn around and say, you put us through all this pain and the economy is still in the doldrums. Gavin, I mean, it's been such a strange couple of weeks. The new government had about two and a half days to make its impression. Do you think that any kind of tone has been set on the political side? Obviously, you know, we all remember the past the, the past two weeks for the, probably the rest of our lives, the strangeness of the, the morning period. But on the politics side for the government, do you think any kind of tone has been set? Well, they've set, they've set a tone in a couple of ways. I mean, one thing I think we need to we need to discuss the dog that doesn't bark, which is Brexit. You know, we should be exporting. We should be exporting to the EU. British exports to the EU fell 33% between 2020 and 2021 because of what one uh, accountant who's involved in this, uh, the trade said is the post-Brexit trading minefield. It's really difficult. The forms are l- ludicrous. And the second thing is, and this is the political gaffe, you know, if Kwasi Kwarteng really thinks that one of the solutions to growth is to attract all those wonderful folk uh, who require bankers' bonuses of more than twice their already six-figure and above salaries, um, he, he's barking up the wrong tree. I mean, the, the Goldman Sachs didn't move mostly to Frankfurt because of bankers' bonuses, where the bankers' <laughs> bonuses are still capped. Um, they moved because of Brexit. And so did other people too. So we are now in, and the, <laughs> we seem to have gone from the 1834 British poor law, which divided us into the deserving and undeserving poor, to the deserving rich, which include the bankers who caused in part the 2008 crash. This is tone deaf politics. It is absolutely disastrous. It's like Trussism is, you, you raised what, what is Trussism at the start? I, I, I immediately thought this is Reaganism without the communication skills. They just don't know what they're doing. <laughs> there was a pretty hilarious story in the Times over the weekend saying that ruthless trust will stamp her authority on the party and that she'd made uh, ministers and their aides show their phones to find out who'd been leaking to the press. We only discovered this story because someone leaked it afterwards. We found out about leaking in a leaked story. Does she have any real authority within the Conservative Party, considering that so many MPs did, voted for the long-lost Rishi Sunak? It's like the head teacher at school saying, I want all, all you boys and girls who've been smoking to hold out your hands so I can see if there's any nicotine stains on it or any smell. You know, this is just, this is just ridiculous. She was not the first choice of the Conservative Party in Parliament. She was never the first choice of the Conservative Party in Parliament. She is the first choice of that self-selected group who pay, you know, a few quid a year in order to be Conservative Party members. And so perhaps for them, (laughs) perhaps for them, a rerun of Reaganism from the 1980s is like releasing the birdie song and they'll all dance to it. I have no idea what her appeal is to the Conservative Party, Mm. but it doesn't seem to carry in the country. The big question is how Labour can, seems to me, is how Labour can best exploit it and whether people within the Conservative Party who can get rid of her realise they're stuck with her till the next election, and they probably are. Do you expect her to let Johnson off in the Standards Committee investigation? That is a very, very good question, and it is very possible. What we have to realise is what has happened in recent recent years is that governments, uh, the, the, the Johnson government has changed the rules about conventions, the kind of norms of behaviour that are so important when you have an uncodified constitution. And he has done it ruthlessly. He has broken various conventions. Uh, he has misled, or effectively misled Her Majesty the Queen uh, over prorogation and other things, as found by the Supreme Court, effectively misled. So the idea and two um, ethics advisors have gone. They've resigned, but they 
position was almost impossible. Liz Truss doesn't seem to think that having an ethics advisor is a good idea. So anything in terms of the conventions and the so-called good chap theory of government has gone out the window. So nothing would surprise me as far as that's concerned. Now, there was some pretty heavy-handed policing of protests during Queen Week. In Edinburgh, a woman with a sign that said, Fuck imperialism, abolish monarchy, and a man who heckled Prince Andrew were both arrested. The people who attacked that man were not arrested. And in Oxford, a man was also detained after he shouted who elected him during another proclamation. Are these just examples of oversensitivity in a sensitive time? Or have we just seen something more permanent and perhaps insidious take root? Um, Gavin... These arrests were not under Priti Patel's new extended powers. The man detained in Oxford was arrested under the Public Order Act, covering offences causing harassment, alarm or distress, which is pretty broad. Have we just broadened police discretion? Well, the police have always had a great deal of discretion. And, you know, I mean, I should back up one one second and just say, I think people should have the right to protest, but I agree with Sadiq Khan. Essentially, it's rather in bad taste. And these protests, I don't think, had any particular impact until people were were arrested. And the police have a difficult, a difficult situation in the sense that even somebody holding out a blank sheet of paper, which looks like somebody being arrested in Russia. If that then develops, is there going to be uh, a bit of civil disturbance? Are people in the crowd going to take a punch at them and so on? So they've got to take a decision. In my it, my view, as far as one can tell from the distance and what, what we know, they've taken some wrong decisions, certainly with a guy with a, a woman with a blank sheet of paper. But it is, it is not easy. Uh, we, I don't think any of these, as far as we know, the ones that we've seen, are likely to go very far in the courts. It doesn't seem very likely to me, but Liberty, who are obviously concerned with civil rights, said this is very worrying. The police have been very handed, heavy-handed and punitive and so on. So uh, uh, just one final final point. Um, you know, you know we, we've all got the right to protest and decide whether we like the monarchy or not. It's not a very good idea to protest at a funeral, however long it is, however you much, much dislike the, the monarchy, as some people do. Well, these weren't at funerals, so whether they were during uh, proclamations, and and on the one hand, we're told don't do it; it's it's not in good taste. But on the other hand, if you want to protest against the institution of the monarchy and a changeover in the monarchy that that cements its uh, its legitimacy, where else are you supposed to do it? If you're not, if you can't do these things, what are you supposed to do? That is true. It gives you a platform, but it is also seen. For example, you know, we had Celtic fans at St. Plains St. Mirren uh, who had uh, there was a minute's applause for the Queen. If you didn't weren't interested in that, you didn't have to do it. But instead, there was a demonstration which in which people. Uh, chanted, if you hate the royal family, clap your hands. Now, people have the right to do that, but other people have the right to judge them for it and say, actually, that's not terribly appropriate. Mm, that's true, but nobody waded into the crowd and, arrest- crowd and arrested the Celtic fans, did they? No, and there's a reason for that, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, bad <laughs> you've taste ever been of the to football a Celtic match. Game, you know yeah. that there's a reason for that. Know, whereas but- whereas the, the individuals, uh, what, what I'm saying is these individuals have the right to do certain things, but other people have the right around them to suggest that this is inappropriate. And the police sometimes have a quite difficult situation of deciding whether it's appropriate if there was a scuffle. Would they get blamed for not stopping it? So that's all I'm saying. Alex, what did you make of the uh, the style of preemptive policing we saw in some of these uh, mini monarchy protests? I mean, uh, as a pattern, I find it quite disturbing. Um but on the individual cases, 
it's impossible to make a judgment on such thing from a, a sort of media summary of them, isn't there? Because you don't know the circumstances. And sometimes policing is about sort of being pra- pragmatic and identifying potential flashpoints before they erupt. So it could be heavy-handedness. It certainly looks like heavy-handedness, but it could just as easily be a constable de- recognizing you're about to get lamped and making the judgment that it's easier to, to remove the one protester from the crowd getting agitated than to remove the crowd um, from the one protester without making a value judgment on the on the quality of the protest, if you know what I mean. I was surprised that, you know, apparently we're living in a, a moment when free speech is, is very contested and it's under threat in our universities and uh, people are being cancelled. I didn't see anybody stand up from the free speech union to defend the person who <laughs> wanted to write something on a bit of paper and hold it above their head. I didn't see any defence of the person who shouted, you know, something I personally don't agree with, but is a reasonable thing to say, not my king. I didn't see yes. any defence from, from those people. Why Where is that? Where are you, Toby? Um, yeah. <laughs> the, look, look, the thing is, I, I'm not, um, I'm not the moral arbiter of other people's actions. I, I, I am only the moral arbiter of my own. So, if we want them to be consistent, then we must be consistent too. I am very much of the free speech doesn't mean you go out of your way to upset people. School, and I remain of it. So, I'm not sure memorial services are the appropriate forum for protest. And I would think the same thing if it was Johnson's funeral. I I wouldn't go so far as to say this is the wrong time, but that doesn't make it the right time either. And I think that's the grey area that that, uh, Republicans need to explore and need to answer. You know, saying this is not the wrong time to protest doesn't mean that protesting right now will advance your cause any which is ultimately the only practical consideration if you're part of a sort of movement or a cause or a campaign. It's to find the right time to protest, not just a time that is not wrong and you can, you're able to argue it's not wrong to protest right now. Sure, of course it's not wrong to protest right now, but is it right from the point of view of the cause you're trying to advance? Does it get you hearts and minds. I don't think it does. When is that time? I don't know. I suspect it would have to be opportunistic and like pick on a moment. There was a, there was a time around Diana's death where it seemed to me that the monarchy was really teetering. Um, that would have been maybe a, 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 the right time to protest. I don't know. You you just have to pick your opening, I guess. In the absence of a time machine, that's a tricky one to pull off. Weirdly, <laughs> David Davis was one who did come out in defence of the right for, for people to protest against, you know, royal figures in those environments. Being disrespectful is not a crime, he said. I was quite impressed by that. Yeah. From well, the Brexit even bulldog. a blind pig finds an acorn, as they say. <laughs> Miata, what did you think about the preemptive um, arrests and preemptive silencing of people? Yeah, so I think there are two things for me. I think there is um, 
showing uh, empathy and respect when someone that has been a long-standing public servant dies and there's a family that's mourning. Um, And so I think there is a question of, you know, what is good taste or bad taste and what is appropriate. But I think that's also distinct from the way that the police uses the huge powers, actually, you realise it has in order to determine what's a nuisance that can't be tolerated um, and what's a nuisance that can. And I was quite surprised because, yes, it will be offensive to some people holding up a placard, uh, but it's a form of peaceful protest. Um, And, you know, we don't know the details. Perhaps it was done just to protect that person in that particular environment. But if it wasn't, I think that is very, very worrying. And I think it's very disturbing because it suggests that even without the new and enhanced powers that the police is about to get around um, protesting, they already have huge discretion to stop us protesting peacefully and expressing um, views and opinions, which I think we should all be looking at with some degree of caution um, and thinking about the sort of checks that need to be put in place in order to protect people with that right that I think is sacrosanct. Alex, I just want to come back to you for, the, for as we finish this section off. When we get back to normal times outside of the uh, this kind of strange period of 24-7 mm. morning on all TV channels, the police will have Pretty Patel's expanded powers, which include arrest on grounds of causing noise, reasonable suspicion of disruption, all the things that make a protest a protest. Are you expecting them to take full advantage of their new powers or are you expecting perhaps restraint? I mean, I would hope for restraint. I think the police are very, very um, keenly aware uh, that they need people on their side to police effectively. We, We simply don't have enough of a police to be an authoritarian state, to be entirely honest. You know, they're they're really, the resources have been really attacked in the last uh, 10 years. Even if they wanted to be some kind of dystopian authoritarian state, they just ain't got the manpower. So I think they'll be keenly um, aware of that. And the other thing is, it depends how pissed off with the government they are to be honest, if they get a shit raise and struggle to pay their utilities, I suspect they're going to be very relaxed about people protesting. If trust is smart, the police will get a bumper pay offer. Otherwise, police strike and Robocop. (laughs) Our favourite movie. Finally, do we all have to start wearing Patagonia now? You know, for the planet. The billionaire boss of the upscale outdoor fashion business has given away his company to a charitable trust, which is going to give its proceeds to fighting climate change. Founder Yvonne Chouinard said that any profit not reinvested in running the business would go towards fighting climate change, with the brand's website now stating, Earth is our only shareholder. Um, Miata, I can't find any precedent for this. What, what did you think about it? I mean, it is unprecedented. Um, I think it's a massive move. Yes, there are cynics around, and we can come back to that in a second. But in the end, uh, you know, Patagonia is a good brand. Um, they have always sort of driven a kind of social purpose agenda, have always been trying to be at the foreground of um, environmental activism uh, within the commercial sector. Um, I suspect part of the calculation is that, you know, whatever you do, in the end, you are selling stuff. And so you'll have a massive carbon footprint. So perhaps this is the way you square that circle by trying to offset it. Um, But 
what I find quite interesting is that there is a move of like billionaires, you know, I think about the patriotic billionaire movement, people who are like, look, we, we, we have more wealth than we know what to do with, uh, any day and twice on Sunday. And actually, perhaps part of our core brand and mission is to start giving that away. Um, and I think that's quite heartening. I don't know how much it will catch on. But I think this is the first major move that tries to crystallize that into something that feels real. Now, we'll, we'll see how it plays out in reality. Uh, you know, some people are claiming this is a kind of massive uh, tax avoidance scheme. I, I don't I don't think it is. You know, I think, you know, there might be things in the margin, but I think it's a sort of statement of an intent. I think it put, sets a kind of gauntlet for others. Um, and I think it kind of raises the stakes of perhaps what we should be expecting um, from organisations that claim they have social purpose and what that actually looks like in practice. I mean, this is a massive step. It's a $3 billion company, and the Shunar family are turning their backs on $100 million of personal profit per year. It does seem to be up in the Bill Gates bracket. Um, Shunar himself does seem to be the real thing. He's a self-described existential dirtbag who drives an old Subaru and has no phone or computer. But it does seem that there is a bit more than this to meet the eye as well. The the trust that's going to get the um, the, the profit to in, invest in the protection of nature and biodiversity is going to get 98% of the shares. But these are non-voting shares. The other 2% stays with Patagonia Purpose Trust, which is run by members of the Shunard family. They are voting shares. They run the company. So Miata, is he, is he having his vegan cake and eating it here? A little bit, but I think if you're going to be generous, and I'm in a really generous mood today, um, I think he would say <laughs> this ensures that the business never falls into the hands of venture capitalists or other sorts of enterprises that would strip us away from our environmental uh, purpose and our social purpose. Um, I think I think on this day, I'm going to take that generous view of it rather than some of the more sceptical takes on what potentially is going on. What an enormously generous person you are. You, 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 you shouldn't be an economist. Um, Alex, uh, we were all encouraged to be activist consumers in the 90s, you know, look at the label and the sustainability. And that has morphed into the kind of, uh, you know, looking for the more politically conscious company, you know, the, the idea that brands are supposed to take a stance mm. on, you know, Black Lives Matter or Trump's immigration policy or green issues and so on. Um, surely an activist billionaire is, uh, you get more bang for your buck, don't you? I mean, an activist billionaire is better than a regular billionaire, I guess. But ideally, there should be no billionaires. Uh, I mean, real resources, um, land, uh, water, energy, they are finite. Um, when someone takes so much bigger a share, um, someone goes without. It, it really is as simple as that. We have gone through decades of this Reaganomics, Thatchernomics idea that you can expand the pie infinitely, but we are now beginning to find the limits of that because of environmental damage, because of shit in our rivers, because of all that stuff. You're beginning to find out that actually the stuff that really matters, land on which you can build, a roof over your head, um, if food uh, that is uh, cheap and nutritious, water that is clean, all that stuff is not infinite. And so my ideal solution would be to say, how much money is enough for anyone? And above that, just tax it, like take all of it. This used to be the case, by the way. 
Um, this used to be the norm, uh, sort of between 70 and 100 years ago, wealth above a certain level used to be taxed at enormously high um, uh, percentages, between 70 and 90 odd percent. You know, it was considered somehow indecent. It was considered unchristian, indecent to have that much money while anyone goes without shoes or without food. And and I think there's there's some sense to that. I'm sure that Patagonia would argue that the wealth and the value they've developed is actually entirely in in their IP and their brand, and that that kind of stuff actually is infinite. You can uh, you can build and expand intellectual property. That's you know people buy Patagonia coats and trousers because they're Patagonia and they're designed around a particular a particular thing. Is activist consumerism just a, a luxury though? The idea that you know the, the Patagonia stuff is quite expensive, but by by buying it, you can sort of tell yourself you're wearing a Patagonia jacket while you drive your four by four to Heathrow. Yeah, is it expensive or is it, or is it fairly priced? I don't know that. Um, I mean, it's possible that paying staff properly and not cutting corners has a big cost. Maybe paying more goes hand in hand with being an activist consumer, which begs the question, is is activism only for the better off? You know, when I was, uh, during the time that I was destitute, I couldn't pick and choose what I bought. I bought whatever had a yellow sticker on it. Um, so I would argue, yes, you need a, a, a sort of surplus of education, of time, of energy and resources to dedicate part of your time to any cause. And few poor people have that. Gavin, what did you make of uh, Patagonia donating itself to uh, Gaia, the Earth spirit? Does it, really, does it really matter if, you know, if Royal Shell is still pumping billions of tons of carbon into the atmosphere? Well, I, I suppose just because you can't do everything doesn't mean to say you shouldn't do nothing at all. And so I tend to agree with Miata that we should look at it and hope for the best and fingers crossed. I, what I thought was most interesting about the statement uh, that came out was when asked about going public, the CEO said, what a, uh, what a disaster that would have been. And I thought that was very interesting because he was obviously referring to the way in which shareholders, like many shareholders, I should say, like ESG programs and companies, environmental, social and governance programs that, that sort of, you know, do good or think they like them. But every quarterly returns, they look at the bottom line. And that's an int- that for, for other companies, that is a very interesting balance. How do you do that? And how do you do it credibly? I mean, we've seen, obviously, in the UK, BP uh, uh, changing to green by painting everything green, but it's still BP. Uh, and as you say, with Shell and others. So people will be sceptical, quite rightly. Uh, uh, but I did think it was very interesting that he seemed to feel, or the company Patagonia seemed to feel, that actually having shareholders prevented you in some way for doing green things. And I'm not sure that that's entirely true because there are plenty of investors who do do seek um one of them one of them is i think this Nor- norwegian sovereign wealth fund which do- does now seek to do greener things <laughs> but is based on oil money that norway pumped out for years in the past so it's a very very complicated ethically complicated situation it seems to me so who's going to buy patagonian jackets now i found that outdoor clothing mocks me as it hangs on the <laughs> hanger. if they make if they make a nice dressing gown i'd consider it 
Me how about you? I'm probably with Alex on the outdoors. <laughs> it's mocking me. Good Lord. It's just like metropolitan. It just hangs there. It just hangs there two sizes ago going, why didn't you go for a run? <laughs> And that brings us to the end of this week's Bunker, which means it's time for the panel's escape routes. What are the books, films, TV shows or miscellaneous that have given them a break from the strange world of politics? Miata, what's your escape route this week? I've been really bad because I'm I'm actually rereading Beyond the Red Wall, uh, as you do. So I've really like thrown myself into uh, the politics of it. Uh, but I just... With a little bit of distance from the last election um, and Brexit and everything, I just thought it would be a really, really fascinating book to go and reread. And it has been uh, about three quarters of the way through. Um, and I'm really enjoying it without all the kind of if you like, the, the bruisingness of the first time I read it round. I'm really looking forward to the Red Wall's verdict on the next election, the next the next round. I'll be very interested to see what the Red Wall have got to say about what's been going on. Gavin, how about you? What's your escape route? Yeah, I, I, mine would have to be be in the miscellaneous category. We just got ourselves a new puppy. He's called Dylan, and he's a Welsh terrier. And I'm afraid that's it. Between that, between that, not not having to read any newspapers for a couple of weeks because they're all the same about the same thing. Um, yeah. To be puppy. fair, dogs are pretty distracting. But you've you've acquired a dog called Dylan. I have. What well, is Welsh. it? A brand new dog, or has it had a careful owner? I know he's a brand new dog as it happens. Excellent. So he hasn't escaped from number 10. No, <laughs> I don't think. Listen, let me tell you about Dylan number 10. I've got a friend who says he sees it in Richmond quite a lot, that dog with his mother-in-law. So I don't know if this is true because I haven't seen it, but I don't think he was in number 10 a lot. It's my, really? My is insight it, source. Fake dogs. <laughs> A I don't think it's dog. a fake dog. I think the dog's real. I'm not. I'm not sure everything else. Is, uh, <laughs> Aye, it's a stunt dog. Alex Andreo, how about you? What's your escape route? Um, so I've uh, been watching The Mandalorian on Disney Plus, which I missed at the time. It just didn't appeal to me. But having watched the Obi Wan Kenobi series, I really, really liked what they did with that. Um, and so I went to the Mandalorian and it's exceptionally good. I'm really enjoying it. I'm about, uh, um, uh, eight episodes in. So towards the end of the first, uh, season. And I think it's, uh, it's really good. I also started reading Count Binfaces. Um, well, <laughs> Is I, he in Star Wars I as got, well? I got, uh, I got a preview copy of his, uh, book or her book. Who knows? Could be um, anybody. Called What on Earth? Um, it's actually really funny and it's actually really uh, incisive. I mean, if you think about it, Count Brinface has been involved in a lot of electoral battles and, and with a lot of politicians. So he or she knows a lot about this subject. It's a, it's a surprise package. It's out at the beginning of October and I'm having a lot of fun with it. 
Mine is, um, I'm speaking of activist billionaires, I'm reading uh, Termination Shock by Neil Stevenson, who's one of my favourite science fiction stroke, science fiction adjacent authors. This is his climate change book, and an enormously wealthy uh, man is basically building a product to reverse climate change by firing sulphur into the atmosphere using the biggest gun ever built. It's preposterous, it's insane, it's a fantastic read. It turns out that this would really work. Sulphur has properties that um, reverse the heating effect of carbon and other sort of greenhouse components to the atmosphere. The only problem is you fill the atmosphere with sulphur. Then what happens? It is, it's a fantastic <laughs> way of exploring an actual real-world geoengineering project through fiction. And if you've ever read Neil Stevenson, this is a guy who can write ridiculously complicated ludicrously involved speculative ideas in the most readable manner possible. This is the guy who created the idea of the metaverse. This book doesn't take place in the distant future. This is like three or four years into our future. It's a very recognisable world and it's a brilliant, brilliant read. That's Termination Shock by Neil Stevenson. And that's the end of this week's bunker. Thank you, Alex Andreo. Thank you. Thank you, Miata Fambole. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming. And thank you, Gavin Esler. Thank you very much. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week, of course. If you like what we're doing, please do consider supporting us on the crowdfunder Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how. And thanks for listening. It's been a complicated couple of weeks. I think we're sort of semi-back to normal now. We'll see you next time. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Alex Andreu, Miata Fanbella and Gavin Esler. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jacob Archbold, Jonas Sofronievich, and me, Alex Reese. With assistant production from Katya Tomasevich. Our marketing manager is Gina Richard. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>